Welcome to Mission Forward. I'm your host, Carrie Fox. Before we get started on today's show, I want to give a quick setup to the conversation that's about to unfold. You know, here at Mission Forward, our goal is to produce thought-provoking and actionable content about the power of communications. Sometimes we're talking about interpersonal communications, and sometimes we're talking about corporate communications. But today, we're talking about mass communications, the power of advertising to inform viewpoints, behaviors, and narratives, and the power of advertising to disrupt false or negative narratives. To help us explore that topic a little more closely, I have invited art director and my dear friend, Jeff Caparizzo, senior partner and executive creative director at ICF Next on to the show. Jeff is a great storyteller and a great example of what we mean when we talk about communications change agents. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I know you will. And if you like what you hear, drop us a rating or a review and check out missionforward.us for more episodes like this one. Now, onto the show. So let's just start right at the top and say how excited I am to have some time today with you, Jeff. And for those listening in, I first met Jeff Caparizzo about 15 years ago, give or take a few years, but when our offices were co-located in Silver Spring, Maryland, and I knew then he had this incredible gift for creative storytelling and actually not just creative storytelling, but very intentional creative storytelling. And I have loved to see how he has used that craft for good in recent years. Um, so I'm really excited for what this conversation is going to hold. Um, Jeff, as we get into this, as you know, on this show, we talk about the power of communications to move missions forward, right? But also the power of communications to bridge divides, to advance inclusion and belonging and ultimately justice, and the power that mass media has on how we understand and connect to both the world at large but also the people who are right in front of us and around us, right? And so given your work as a creative director, I am excited for what we will tackle in this conversation, right? The role that you see ad executives and creative directors and creatives maybe more broadly playing in shaping and shifting and disrupting narratives. First, I want to start with you. I would love you to tell me a little bit more about your story, how you got into this line of work and you know what drives you every day. Sure, Carrie. Thank you. Um, and I uh, look back fondly on uh, on when we would uh, be able to meet outside uh, for lunch, you and Brian, uh, and also seeing your your little children start to grow up. And also, I've been following you on LinkedIn. Uh, I think that the work with mission partners and and the the work you've been doing overall throughout your career for advocacy and cause development is so impressive. It's why I kept following you. So I'm really happy to be here and uh, and take part in that. Keeping my my back history as short as possible, you know, I kind of backed into um, marketing and and uh, design and creative development. I was a fine arts major um, in college. Uh, immediately moved to New York City a month after uh, I graduated, uh, just to paint. You know, that's as far as I got really. Is just uh, I wanted to go to New York. I knew there was a lot of creative energy there, uh, and. Uh, you know, want to take part in that. And that was all true. New York was amazing. Uh, it's a little bit different than the New York now, which is, I always laugh about it because it's it's kind of like an outdoor mall now. Um, you know, when you walk through uh, Times Square, you know, you've got uh, a Disney store and, and, and uh, a lot of retail. But when I was there, you know, there were syringes on the ground outside the Port Authority. And uh, there was a Black Panther meeting that would happen uh, every day on the, on the street corner. And uh, of course, you had a lot of illicit stuff going on as well. It was just more 
uh, gritty, you know, it was a, um, a different New York, you know, uh, but it had tremendous creative energy. And, um, you know, so I was uh, there painting uh, and I was working as a sign maker on, uh, on 23rd Street. And um, I met, uh, I met somebody and they were moving to DC and uh, I said, oh, well, then I've got to uh, move to the Mid-Atlantic. And, you know, being a sign maker was fine, but it's a job that requires a lot of uh, physical endurance. And I knew that that wasn't really going to have, I wasn't going to be able to keep up with that as I aged. And somebody had said, you should try design. And I didn't even know what graphic design was. I remember sitting down with that person and, and they were like, well, the first thing you're going to have to know is fonts. And I was like, what's a font? You know, um, I remember I distinctly asking that. They gave me a book of fonts and it was fascinating because those letter forms were like magical to me. I thought they were so beautiful. Like, um, and that's kind of started me on a path and uh, love for design. Uh, so I uh, went to the New York Public Library, ripped out uh, of the DC phone book, Yellow Pages, uh, all of the design firms and started cold calling them from the basement of the School of Visual Arts. And uh, many of them hung up on me because I had never touched a Macintosh. And of course I wasn't a design major. But I got one Atelier Design or Atelier Creative uh, who said, we have to see you. You know, you're, the fact that you're cold calling us and you, you don't know anything about design, what are you going to bring us? And I said, well, I can bring you my canvases. And they were like, bring us your canvases. So uh, I brought them my canvases. God bless them to this day. Pete Beebe, Jean Wegemont, uh, and Ann Alger uh, gave me a chance. And that was my, you know, beginning. So uh, it was, um, you know, it was one of those things where uh, I literally came in not knowing I was a production designer first and, um, you know, through the, through the, the different companies and years, I've, I've gained a lot of knowledge and skill to, to, to be where I am now, which, you know, uh, I owe it all to them. top of your game, right? Well, like, trying, I trying mean, it's incredible. Be. I had a lot of good teachers. So, so bring us up to speed. Where, where are you now and where have you been the last few years? So, yeah. So, uh, um, you know, I uh, this is my third global agency, which is ICF. Uh, a lot of folks, even in DC Metro, don't know about ICF. I, ICF it stands for, uh, it was made about 60, 65 years ago, stands for uh, Inner City Fund. You know, they were first uh, in, in the Midwest. The inception was uh, basically you know, uh, back in the day, consulting around helping uh, minority businesses. Um, uh, and other small businesses get access to government funding. Um, the first president of ICF was a Tuskegee Airman. Um, and that started to, uh, through acquisition, they kept, kept expanding uh, all of that, that skill uh, and all of that offering and capability around operations and, and programs, specifically in tech as well. So like, you know, you know for big uh, companies uh, and organizations and uh, government, they'll come in and say, hey, you know, Department of Energy, you need uh, a, a specific platform and organizational structure to get to the things that you want. We're going to tell you how to do that. Um, you know, nearest competitors are like Deloitte and Accenture, um, as well as some of the communication firms like Weber, Shanwick, and Ogilvy. Uh, and all of it is in uh, very much mission-driven, like you were, um, you know, you devoted your life to in, in that it's in the nonprofit and government space. Uh, for specialized audiences in cause development or advocacy for certain issues. So really rewarding to be on mission, you know, pretty much the entire portfolio, you know. I, I want to just pause and pick up on a really interesting theme that I'm realizing from several people who have been on this season of the show. 
So, so Jeff, when you were sharing your story and said, you know, I wasn't a designer, right? I didn't, I didn't have a Mac, right? Right. But that you got into this work and you were so incredibly skilled at it. You had the the vision and the creative, even if you didn't yet have the technical skill for it. Last week, I was talking with Craig Newmark, who's who will also be on this episode, and he said I was asking him how he got to be so in tune to what to how philanthropy works, right? He's really become known in recent years as a very active philanthropist. And he said, I'm good at it because I don't know what I'm doing. And then earlier this year, I spoke with Yada Peng at Just Fund, who's really challenging how philanthropy works in technology and on technology spaces. And she said the same thing. You know, this isn't my space. I just showed up one day and I saw something that wasn't working and I found a different way to do it. It feels really important to, to think about that, that people who take the traditional path and what it means and the potential of coming in in an alternative path. Yeah, I think there's pros and cons to both. You know, I had uh, I had a first cousin who went to Ringling School of Art and Design, you know, had a really straight path to certainly more money off the bat, you know, because when I came to work for that DC firm, I, I basically said, I'll be your in-house illustrator for free, mm-hmm. you know, uh, just so I could learn skills. So I think there is something to be said if you, you know, if, for example, my industry in, in design, if you went to SBA, if you went to SCAD, if you went to, you know, um, RISD, you know, that's, that's a, a straighter path. You know, mm-hmm. um, and that has advantages. You know, I think that the the path that I took, which is certainly more meandering and, and has a little bit more of um, you've got to just bust ass and hustle. You know, you're learning, uh, you're, you're becoming good at learning and you're becoming good at um, at, uh, of, uh, at that hustle, you know, and that hunger. And it helps you um, later on, you can climb learning curves faster. So right. I think there's advantages and, you know, to it. But with with art, you know, and art and design are so close. There's a lot of skills. You know, I still tell people to this day that the hardest thing I can do during a year is trying to make a successful painting. It really is. I I consider design, you know, um, almost like a, it's like a wind sprint, you know, for for that kind of work, you know, um, uh, and not taking anything away from any of it. You know, mm-hmm. it's just uh, I think they're 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 very much hand in hand. So it, I did have help there. You yeah. know, in that it wasn't a completely foreign language. It was just more concentrated and had specifics around business. Right. You know? Right. You know, the reason why I think uh, one of the many reasons why I've always liked to to watch you work and see how you um, how you work is that I've always valued the connectivity between words and images. Right. The power of compelling words and compelling design. And. Many times on this show, we are talking about the power of words, the impact of words, whether we realize or not the language we are using. Um, but I'd love for us to talk a little bit about how you think about the power of design, right? To, to shape or shift narratives, right? There's, there's that great line of art creates culture. Can it also recreate culture? Can it challenge culture? And, and how do you think about the power that design has in shaping and shifting a narrative? Absolutely. I think I think uh, it is one one of the most powerful tools you can do to create a narrative or or, or to change culture. You know, um, design is all around us, and I'm not just talking graphic design. You know, one of the things that you know for you and I at, at the stages in our life, and certainly you see this in popular media, people have gotten um, a great to a greater degree an understanding of interior design. Look at it, the success of HGTV, right? And the reason I was pointing to our age groups is because many times we're we're beyond that starter house, beyond that starter appointment and we're uh, apartment, and we're now getting into 
actually shaping and designing our environment. And this was what, what the whole thing about Target, when Target, you know, what was the difference between Target and Walmart is that Michael Graves made a blender, right? So they were, you know, Walmart was like, I'm going to give you a blender for five bucks. Target was like, I'm going to give you a blender for $6, but it's going to look like a piece of art, right? So that understanding of design uh, is something that people, I think, is much higher over the last two decades than it was. And the, the reason I bring it up is because I think people are realizing that design and shaping your environment, designing your environment, whether it's two-dimensional or three-dimensional, whether you're living in it or looking at it, makes you who you are, mm -hmm. right? So that gets back to what you were talking about, which is the storytelling. You know, it's like, what's my story? Well, the reason I'm spending so much time on getting Michael Graves to blender on my counter is because I have a vision for what I want my story to be. And this is my backdrop, right? right. This is my setting. You know, this right. is the stage I'm on. And so I'll be talking, uh, you know, my, my girlfriend, sometimes we had, we had this joke one time, she had to clean out her refrigerator and I go, this refrigerator is a metaphor for your life. You know, we're just kidding around, you know, and it was a mess and, and, you know, and we were laughing about that, but that's, I think that people's understanding, you know, when we see those HGTV shows, we're like, okay, I used to go on my backyard, my mom's, you know, clothesline was across the thing. It almost strangled me when I would try to run around and stuff. Now people have backyards that look like, you know, it looks like you're at MGM, you know, uh, resorts, you know what I mean? And, and it's because of design and it's because we're, we're, I think we're conscious of that and we're seeing the effect of it, that those, those design elements can really make a difference about how you entertain, how you live your life, how you spend your leisure, how you feel about where you live. And of course that gets into that. That's an important principle to carry forward into the work that, that you, um, and mission partners does, you know, the process of informing the design, right? Like, has that changed for you or your agency or your your industry over time on how you are thinking about the sources or the insights that are ensuring that you are creating a design that works across cultures? Yeah, I think, you know, you're starting with the audience. Obviously, you're, you're trying to, you know, grab that audience lens and use it um, to try to gain insights you know, to try to figure out, you know, beyond the observation on the audience, what are the things that were are real drivers for them that it would really, you know, get some engagement. Um, and most importantly, not try to sell them something. That's the difference between that old school Madison Avenue stuff. And I think now is that people's collective nose for bullshit is much higher, right? It's much more acute. But also when you're when you're trying to reach diverse audiences, you're not trying to sell them something. You're trying to actually be authentic to where they are, their lived experience, you know, where they're coming from um, in order to engage them. And that authenticity is what we often get stuck on, you know, because we're trying to, uh, the mistake we make is that we're trying to, to push something out to them versus actually engaging them. Engagement is, is two way, you know? And, and so that authenticity, if you feel like somebody's just throwing stuff at you, you know, that, that you're, you're like, okay, I'm just going to shut this off. I've got enough going on in my life. I don't want it, you know, but that when you feel like somebody's being authentic and actually trying to reach you in an authentic way, in a human way, you know, that's what we're reaching for. And it's very hard to do because, you know, you have to start out with getting to know that audience. And that's um, often, oftentimes the pacing and the budget and all that other crap gets in the way, you know, so. Uh, I think that that's much, it's, uh, to answer your question, from then to now, I think there's a greater emphasis on knowing the audience, being authentic to the audience, um, reflecting the audience. And I think it's harder because there's not a broad brush anymore. 
you know, that that those audiences are demanding, and rightly so, that um, it's a, a, an authentic voice based on them for them. You know, case in point of that, it's about a year ago, I was in a meeting with a group of healthcare executives, and we were talking about how to get some critical COVID messages out to different communities. And one of the executives spoke up and he said, I really think we need to do some videos, right? This is the thing I know that's what I would respond to. And I really think that the audience will respond to that too. And we dug a little bit more and we said, well, how do you know that that's the platform that the audience, he said, well, it, it would work for me. So I would imagine that it works for others. And that was the moment, right? That we have to continue to, to monitor, are we solving for ourselves or are we solving for our audience? And it's two, di two very different things. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a huge deal. I you know I uh, I I fall so uh, I always have to remind myself to pull out of that, um, which I think is a misstep. You know, uh, to pull out of that misstep because you know my background as uh, uh, as a male, as a, as a northeastern male, as an Italian American male, you know that is such a limited point of view, um, and uh, doesn't apply to so many so much of of the audiences we're trying to reach now in, in America as it is today. Uh, and so that's where it gets into that listening, uh, that authentic um, and, and concentrated listening that you do to the, the audience. You've been doing some really interesting things. And I don't know if there's a story that you can share with us, but how you're thinking about who the spokesperson is in the campaign or how to engage different voices or unexpected voices in a campaign. I, I find that work really interesting. Anything you can share there? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we had a, a client that we were introducing a spokesperson for the first time, you know, uh, uh, into their marketing mix. And we're all familiar with spokespeople. There's nothing avant-garde about using a spokesperson. We're, we, we love Lily for AT&T. We love Flo for, for Progressive. You know, uh, uh, I, I remember doing case studies, le learning about how Mr. Whipple was squeezing the Charmin back in the day was, you know, just so, uh, it just took those sales through the roof. Um, and the reason that that's a, a ready tool is because it humanizes the brand, you know, and you, people want to see people, um, you know, that's with flow. I mean, think about insurance, like, how are you going to sell insurance? But all of a sudden we're laughing and smiling at flow and makes it more, more sense to us, you know? So because we were looking at the audiences and we knew we wanted to reflect who we're actually talking to, we um, not only picked uh, a female spokesperson, but also an African-American spokesperson. This was groundbreaking for the brand. Uh, and it was something that the studio had never done, you know? Um, and it's it's uh, hard enough to stand up a spokesperson for a brand. What was so fascinating, and we're still in the middle of it, is there are so many considerations for, um, with that spokesperson knowing that you're talking to uh, an audience that wants something authentic, you know, how does that affect the script? How does it affect the script writers? You know, how does it affect uh, the the way that um, the the the, what, the role that she he or she might play in the spots? You know, um, and the interactions with the other actors, and what is the dynamic there? You know, we, we weren't being authentic. We weren't being authentic to um, to that heritage. We weren't being uh, authentic to that audience, um, and it was coming off as uh, canned, uh, and it was coming off as something that wouldn't resonate. Um, we even ran into there's certain tropes in cinema when you're dealing with African American folks that you want to avoid. 
and we stumbled into one of those, you know, um, and so we had to really pivot from a concept that was largely baked and shot, you know, um, and it was a huge learning experience. Uh, I'm so glad we went through it. Uh, it's something that we're taking forward with the campaign, um, but it certainly was eye-opening and it was, it was, it was something as we brought in, uh, you know, I think I mentioned to you before we started recording that we have at ICF, we have a special team that's devoted to reaching specialized audiences and making sure that we're uh, we're really listening to them and that we really are, are reflecting their background and we're, that we're um, speaking to them in their language and that we're making sure that they're seen and heard and represented in the right way. And that specialty was developed midstream for all this creative development. And so even as that practice was standing up, we were then bringing them into the creative development and learning all of that together. So it's been very dynamic, you know, and certainly something I've never run into, a, you know, doing this for 25 years, uh, which is exciting. You know, you're learning, but also it's, it's hard because the tools that, you know, 10 years ago, this would have been done and on the air, you know, um, the tools that I were in my toolbox, I've had to throw some of them out and I've had to add to a lot of them, you know, so, um, that was something that for me was exciting, but also frustrating. Cause I'm like, Oh, I've got this down, you know, I'm hundred years old. I've been doing this for a long time. You know, I got it. And, uh, I was like, Nope, I've got to check all those premises and, uh, come at it in a different way and, and ask for help. And, uh, and so that's been great. But it sounds like I'm in such a healthy process, right? That the challenge of going through that, of, of challenging what you knew and how you went through the process to be able to grow in real time through that. That's, that's exciting, right? That that is evolution. Yeah, absolutely. It's very exciting. It really is. And you're seeing you're seeing so many brands wrestle with that. I mean, that's yeah. what's been so interesting about the George Floyd, you know, systemic racism discussion and in, in, in the country is that, you know, we all laugh as communicators and marketers at these brand missteps. Right. You know that, um, you know, something I forget what happened. But, you know, there was a shoe company who tweeted something like literally the day after the verdict or whatever. You know, and uh, and that's that evolution has been demanded, you know, across across uh, all disciplines, you know, and you can see that some folks are, you know, uh, not are leaning into it and saying, OK, how can I learn? Some folks are just ignoring it and some folks are actively pushing it back against it. You know, uh, I love that ICF is open to that. One of the things that's cool about the company I work for is that being consultants, they they're always thinking, uh, what's the best tool? Who's the right person? You know, that's how they, there's, that's really the only bias they have in terms of, you know, an approach, right. you know, it's like, Hey, how do we get the right mix going? Yeah. Uh, and it really served us well in this challenge. You know, that comes back to what you were saying earlier around authenticity too, of brands who rush to build a public facing campaign that is, yeah. uh, it seems purposeful. It seems intentional. Um, and yet they've not done the depth of learning or uh, inward reflection in the organization to be able to make that authentic. And often that's where it looks like the breakdown happens, right? When someone or an organization is is rushing to, to get that out before the hard work has been done. Yeah. I've seen, I've seen research and audience research in particular be the Achilles heel for large agencies mm -hmm. uh, through my career. And the reason for that is because time is money mm -hmm. and they're looking at that time. Uh, it's not... They want to gallop towards the deliverable, right? And uh, because the client wants a deliverable, right. you know, and so often that pivotal research and insight phase is scanty, right? And 
what we're learning is, especially when we're talking about this today's landscape for comms, you can't you can't blow that off, right? Because what what ends up happening is that you you end up producing something that that doesn't ring true to the the, the special audience you're trying to reach. It just doesn't work, right? Right. Well, it's an it's an important although different way of thinking about packaging, advertising, and creative, which is. Yes, you are going to hire the expert like Jeff or someone else to do this campaign, but that Jeff is going to be learning with you along the way as you're learning about your audience and getting steeped in your audience and understanding how to bring that message to the audience in a way that it will resonate so deeply. And so investing in the shared learning is such an incredible part of the the end result. Right, right. Or, you know, or coming in, um, and having that person who already is the expert on the audience mm-hmm. and the subject matter, you know, sometimes that can be the same role. Sometimes that can be the different role. So that if you're a client, you're like, well, I don't want to pay for cap to learn all this stuff. Like, you know, and I get it. Right. So what you would do is make sure that there's someone on the team who's owning that role and is able to then steward the work through along with the other the other roles, you know. Um, but that person has to be there. And traditionally, they have not been. You know, so it's an interesting, uh, it, it changes the dynamic. One more um, question, but first I want to make a connection back to um, maybe part of thinking about what you were just talking about, how in that last project you were learning along the way. I am thinking back to the first project that you and I worked on together. If you can remember it, it was an incredible public service announcement for a campaign called Success Beyond 18. And you had this incredible vision about how we could not have any talent in the piece, but that every person in that PSA was going to be a young person who had aged out of foster care. And they were going to own the story and tell it in their own words. And I remember setting up that set and running through that day, which went flawlessly the power, Jeff, of that piece, of that 30 seconds of content and how that went on to transform laws in 25 states where um, governors took the initiative to change to change the law to allow a young person to stay in care until their 25th birthday, right? The power of how that story was told was because of how authentic the story was. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I, it's funny you bring that up, Carrie, because as I learned about that issue, where basically you had these kids who were going through foster care already under incredible challenges throughout their development. And then suddenly, when they reach a certain age, that support net is just pulled out from underneath them. I still think about that. I can't imagine. Um, and it really struck me at the time when we were building this. I can't imagine how that must feel, mm-hmm. you know, um, because they're already um, they're already dealing with so much. And so that's where you know, you're never going to come up with a creative concept that's more powerful than their personal story and journey. And really, your your job is to get out of the way and let them tell it. And that's what we tried to do. Um, we had to do it in 30 seconds. So we had to do it with like a visual metaphor, you know. But, you know, whenever you see that so often with stuff that is really vital to the human family, which really hits us, uh, you know, where we live as as human beings, you just got to let those folks represent it and tell that story, you know. and um, and it usually works if you do it right. I'm going to ask Jeff, as we are wrapping up, what is giving you hope as you think about the work you're doing or the sector you're in or the, the world around you? What's giving you hope these days? 
You know, what's giving me hope is that, uh, first of all, you know, ICF, it's all mission driven. So, you know, as long as you have people who are working hard towards uh, some of these goals that we we all have to to, to make um, the, the world a better place, you know, um, that that's something that's always inspirational to me and the people I meet and work with to help help me do that uh, or to partner with. Uh, is is an inspiration. And then, you know, I'm such a creative uh, zealot and enthusiast. You know, I'm always inspired by the great work from not only the the, the team I work with, but uh, my peers in the industry, like you and uh, and some of the other folks. Um, and that's what drives me. You know, how, how many times will I see just a, a cool campaign, uh, whether it's in cause development or commercial or something like that. And I sit there and I just, I'm like, that's perfect. I, I, I wouldn't change a thing on that. It's so wonderful. We, we share them all the time in studio with each other. That's what gets me excited in the morning because I have a chance to, to, to make something like that, you know? So um, that's what I'm looking for. Thanks, Jeff, for the work that you do and for being with us today. Absolutely, Carrie. I was uh, happy to be here. And that brings us to the end of this episode of Mission Forward. Thanks for tuning in today. If you're stewing on what we discussed here today, or if you heard something that's going to stick with you, drop me a line over at carryatmission.partners and let me know what's got you thinking. And if you have thoughts for where we should go in future shows, I'd love to hear that too. Mission Forward is produced with the support of Sadie Lockhart in association with True Story FM, engineering by P. Wright. If your podcast app allows for ratings and reviews, I hope you will consider doing just that for this show. But the best thing you can do to support Mission Forward is simply share the show with a friend or a colleague. Thanks for your support, and we'll see you next time.